Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. Before we jump into this week's episode, we want to take a second to remind you that registration for the 2022 ASHT annual meeting is open. This year's meeting is going to be held in one of my favorite cities, Washington, D.C. I've read through the program for this year's meeting several times, and I get more excited about the sessions each time I do. The annual meeting committee has set a great program that you do not want to miss out on. D.C. is also a great city to visit, and we're so lucky to be back there again this year. Early bird registration does in July 18th, and you can find all the information and register at ASHT.org. So now on to this week's episode. We are joined by Gail Severance and Danielle Zook, both occupational therapists and certified hand therapists with Penn Good Shepherd in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They're no stranger to treating patients who have sustained complex traumatic injuries, and they share their wisdom with us. They share tips on how to prioritize your evaluation and treatment sessions to maximize outcomes, and they provide some really great advice on how to be an advocate for your patient. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Gail and Danielle. So welcome, Gail and Danielle. Would you mind giving us a little bit of a background about each of you? We'll start with Gail. Hi, thank you for having us. My name is Gail Severance, and I am an occupational therapist and a certified hand therapist. And I work at Good Shepherd Pen Partners. Good Shepherd Pen Partners is the rehab provider for Penn Medicine or the University of Pennsylvania Health System here in Philadelphia. And I have been with Penn for, I want to say, 17 years. I joined them when I was just getting into hands. I was at another hospital system, actually, when I first started in hands and then came over to Penn and then eventually got my CHT when I was there. So I've been there ever since working in our Philadelphia outpatient office, which is one of our largest outpatient facilities. And I am currently serving as our hand therapy team leader, which means I kind of work helping to coordinate education and training and just general knowledge and leadership within our hand therapy group. And our company has 27 outpatient offices, but we have about hand therapists and probably I think it's 11 offices. And we have a team varies around in the low 20s of therapists with our company. And so it's a really great group and I enjoy working with them. Good company. And how about you, Danielle? So my name is Danielle Zook. I'm an occupational therapist and a certified hand therapist. I've been a CHT for, I think, four years now, and I've been doing outpatient hand therapy for eight years now. Time keeps going by. I've worked alongside Gail for the last three and a half years, I think. Again, time keeps going by, but I've always worked outpatient. This is the first experience I've worked in a large hospital system. So you work you know, directly with the surgeons. It's so definitely a different experience. So I know our discussion this evening is on traumatic hand injuries. So I guess what favorite traumatic hand injury do each of you like to work with? I guess we'll start there. Wow. A favorite. That's actually tricky. I don't know if I have a favorite. I 
we work with some really skilled hand surgeons. And so working with them kind of makes everything fun and interesting. And having a favorite trauma injury is <laughs> double-sided to enjoy something and bring somebody through right. a good deal of discomfort. <laughs> but you know what? Any ones that involve a lot of like flaps and grafts because they have such good coverage. And then those patients do well going on to have secondary surgeries if they're needed. When there's nerve involvement, and it's not overly complicated nerve involvement, but you know, there's hope for nerve recovery. It's kind of fun to watch that nerve come alive again. Those are good. You know, ones with really deep and ugly and difficult wounds, those make my hair stand a little on end because those are always problematic. So, so I don't know if I necessarily have favorite trauma, but those are sort of situations that I hope for and ones that I don't hope for. So for myself, I would say right now I have two really complicated gunshot wound patients. So I'm kind of thinking about that just because I have two pretty challenging cases right now. But we see a lot of gunshot wounds, a lot of knife injuries, which I wasn't used to seeing at my previous job. So I think I'm going to have to gravitate more towards that answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you tend to see a little bit more of those being in the city, I would say. I know when I worked in the city, it was the same way. Like I was getting things that... I wouldn't normally get if I if I worked when I worked more local. What would you say are the most common injuries that you see? Well, I think you filled that in a little bit. You know, working in the city, in any city, we have a lot of gunshot wounds, unfortunately, and even probably more so lately. But I would say, again, because we're a regional trauma center, we get things that are inherent within the city, and then we get things that are brought in to us. So we can see anything from gunshot wounds, which could be low ballistic or high ballistic type injuries. And the high ballistic injuries are going to be much more traumatic, a lot more soft tissue injuries. You're going to have motor vehicle accidents, and those can be, you know, just bad fractures, you know, even open fractures to things that may be more chemical involved because of maybe like airbags or things like that, or crush injuries with that. And then industrial accidents, which again are going to be crush injuries or degloving injuries, car accidents and motor vehicle accidents can also be degloving injuries. Those are tough ones. And then explosions you know, which are really dirty and ragged. And those. And this is probably, depending on when this podcast airs, 4th of July is certainly within that something to consider. So everybody stay away from fireworks on the 4th of July. <laughs> those are ones. Danielle, do you have to add yeah. to that? You know, those weekend warriors, the table saw injuries, that kind of... Yeah, exactly. Amputations, those mm-hmm. lacerations and amputations with those. And another aspect of not, of just those sort of immediate outpatient ones or, you know, you're going to have patients that are, they're going to go to the ER, be treated uh, trauma and outpatient surgeries or spend a night or two in the hospital. And then you're going to have other people that are much more serious trauma, which is affecting many more of the systems. And they're going to be in the hospital for a long period of time. And we actually will support our inpatient therapists. We don't have hand therapists and inpatients, but we have some wonderful occupational therapists at the three different hospitals that we have in the city. And they all 
have gone through a, a splinting super user program so they can make orthoses for the patients in the hospital. They can contact us and in outpatient and we can help facilitate and educate them on anything that they need to do to help the patients in that acute care setting. We'll even run over and do a consult. Those happen less often because our therapists are really wonderful in the hospital, but we're on hand that we can do that. And then there's also those people that have those critical limb ischemia problems from systemic illness where their hands are trying to gangrene. I mean, those are other types of sort of trauma that are inpatient rehab and inpatient acute care therapists have to to manage. So when you do get a referral for a patient that has a complex trauma, whatever it might be, whether it is involving, you know, they've been inpatient for a while and they come to you or they are outpatient, we all know our time is precious. How do you prioritize that hour, 45 minutes, whatever you've got where you have to cover so many things What do you prioritize at that first visit with that patient? We were just talking about in terms of the priorities, you always have to think about the pain. You always have to think about what are you protecting? What are you trying to mobilize? And then the patient education, you know, what is the health literacy? What is the compliance and what is the adherence going to be? Is this someone we're seeing one time and then we're not seeing them again? They're going to be going to a different site. They're out of state. Or is this someone who's going to be following with us in the clinic? Our schedule set up a little interesting because most of us work five days a week and we do have one clinic day where we're just making post-op splints. So that day, you never know what you're going to get. Sometimes it works out where you have a heavy trauma and you can have that person for two hours because you don't have anyone else waiting. Or you could have a heavy trauma and you have five people who are sitting in the waiting room waiting for you know distal radius fractures. So it is a lot of prioritizing and a lot of trying to juggle. Yeah, I think you make a good point. And I'm sure being in the city, you experience the lower adherence rates maybe with patients or even the lack of visits that you do see. Like you mentioned, you might see a patient once, whether they do live in the neighborhood and they just can't come, won't come, whatever. If you know that that is the patient that's sitting in front of you, are there things that you specifically prioritize in that that one visit that you assume this may be it? Definitely. And it really depends because we do have some insurance issues. Our patients, you know, sometimes pen doctors, because we're half pen, half good shepherd, the pen doctors can see a patient under no insurance. And then they do this really complex surgery without require, you know, like a flexor tender repair or something that requires a lot of therapy, a lot of guidance. And then they come over for therapy, but they actually don't have insurance. So we do have a charity care program. If that's the case, we do spend time helping them fill out forms, making sure that we can try and see them. We'll see them for a one-time visit as a write-off to really try and get a program together, try and get them successful. It's really challenging. And often there's language barrier as well. So then you're using, we have this Marty translator so then you're using that, you're trying to make sure everything's coming across. It's it's definitely challenging. I mean, I think it was one of the hardest things coming into this program compared to where I was working before. But Gail has a ton of experience doing it. She might have some better words of wisdom. No, I think those are all really good points. And I think the other thing you have to consider when you're dealing with a trauma patient, I mean, everything that you said, Kara, is that you know, adherence is always a problem. And especially when you're dealing with a trauma patient, you're dealing with, you know, not all, but you know, many patients that undergo trauma, you know, live in an environment 
that maybe puts them at risk for trauma. And then that cascades to other things that puts them at risk for having trouble with having the appropriate, really good quality follow-up, or even just knowing how to navigate the very complex healthcare system that we have. And so, you know, all these things start to layer on making it difficult for the patient and for us as therapists to kind of make all these puzzle pieces fit together. So there's the trauma, you know, that they're they're dealing with that. And then they have all these external traumas that are going on and that, you know, and the cascade of events that happens when somebody has an injury with financial stresses and job losses and family stress and all that stuff. So all these things make it very, very difficult. So I think you make a good point. You know, we have to prioritize things. And Danielle and I were talking about this the other day. And obviously we're going to work systematically through, you know, you still have to treat these patients like you would any of your other patients. You're going to go through each and every system. The difference with these patients is that you you have to work more systematically and a little bit faster. You can't miss those systems. Each one of those systems is important. Musculoskeletal system, the vascular system, the nervous system, all those things. You need to screen and look at them and get a general idea of what's going on. But you're right. You do have to prioritize things. And so we were just mentioning the other day, there are, you know, four things, if we were going to think about things, would be things focus on four Ps, which would be focusing in on pain. What's this patient's immediate pain right now and how are they coping with it both emotionally and physically? You know, that's a priority very early on. Protection. What do you need to protect so that you can stay? What can you, what needs to be stabilized and what needs to be mobilized? Patient education, you know, making sure that they are understanding the information that you're passing on to them. And are you sort of narrowing that down to what they need to know in that moment? And what's their comprehension and understanding and their even ability to wrap their brain around all this information with all the other information maybe they got that day from their physician? So, yeah, those are the big things. So... What would you have, you know, we have a lot of clinicians that maybe aren't certified hand therapists and are occupational therapists or physical therapists that are listening to the podcast that may not have a lot of experience in traumatic injuries, but they get a referral for a traumatic injury and they, you know, might not have anybody immediately on site that they could go to for guidance. What would you suggest to those newer clinicians or to those clinicians that don't get these type of injuries often? What recommendations would you make or how can they, you know, do the evaluation, get out of the evaluation, what they need to get out and identify and to be able to successfully treat that patient? Gail and I talked a little bit about this the other day as well. So Gail is not a fan of protocols. Newer therapists really like to rely on protocols, right? You know, some of them just really, and I know as a new grad, when I was first working, you want to follow the protocol exactly. You don't want to miss anything. You want that exact step-by-step. But with these complex traumas and you're looking at the next trauma, the protocols aren't going to be straightforward. A lot of them are going to contradict each other. So we were just kind of talking about knowing your anatomy. So that is more helpful than having a protocol for one specific injury memorized. And we were also talking about finding out who your point of contact is. So in our health system, the surgeons really rely heavily on their, you know, PAs on their nurse practitioners. They don't always have time to answer the phone, especially for an outside therapist. So knowing who you can contact 
and just knowing, you know, what do you need to be able to do safely? You might miss something the first time, but you want to make sure what you're doing is safe and you're not moving something you shouldn't be moving. When in doubt, you can always look up the patient information later. You can always look up everything after. Just make sure you're not doing any harm and you're providing them with good information to get it started with. And you can always, you know, the patient leaves, you're spending that night researching, you're looking up things. Especially as a new grad, I did that all the time. I think it's just that. And again, I think just looking at your systems, like, you know, when you have a trauma patient in front of you, just go to your basics, go what you do with every single patient you go in, you're going to look at their vascularity, how what's their blood flow look like? What's the edema look like? What's their skin and their, their wounds look like? You know, what do you need to stabilize within that fracture situation? What's involved with the musculoskeletal, the muscle, the tendon, muscle tendon system, extensors, flexors, and just balance a lot of that out. And just then when you're talking about immobilization, you know, because a lot of times that's why they're sent to you for that first visit, right? Because we're the experts in fabricating these orthoses that keep them safe, all those systems safe. So you want to just, again, consider, you know, the quality of their skin, the vascularity of the wounds, and the stabilization of what for that fracture or the tenon unit, and just go to those safe positions, you know, know your safe positions, and if nothing else, just get them into that functionally safe position, that wrist neutral, slight extension, MP flexion, IP extension, and maintaining that web space, particularly looking at that web space being it's so important for function. So, you know, just go to your home base, go to what you know for anything, and that's your safe place to be, and that's your safe place to start off from. And like Danielle said, when if you have the opportunity, and if you're not sure, check with your colleagues, check with a surgeon. And if the surgeon's in a big hurry, go to them with what you think you want to do and say, instead of just saying, what do you want me to do? Because they may say, you're the expert. I'm going to rely on you. You do it. You're going to say, go to them with a plan. Like, this is what I think I want to do. This is why I understand that you fixed. Are you okay with me doing X, Y, and Z? So that you're giving them your suggestions and they're confirming that that goes along with what they did surgically or medically for the patient. So I think that's where Danielle was saying that, you know, whether you follow protocol or whether you don't, it, you know, because a lot of these things don't have strict protocols, but you need to just understand the system that you are trying to protect and the system that you're trying to treat and, you know, go to your basics for what we know for treating each one of those systems. Mm -hmm. That's some really, really good advice. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. A lot of times, especially after you get them in a safe position, get them started in a home exercise program, the first visit might be a lot about more of the psychosocial aspects of the trauma of the upcoming weeks. You know, what everyone's always asking, when am I going to be 100%? When am I going back to work? When is this going to be normal? I think a lot of the time is education on that and expectations and, you know, that you're in this for the long haul. You had a traumatic injury. It's going to take some time and there might be some expectation changes along the way as well. That was my fourth P, <laughs> psychological well-being. There we go. <laughs> Pain, patient education, protection, and psychological well-being. Those are your... <laughs> So I am going to just throw this out there because this is something that I don't think we're not taught this in school. You're not taught this anywhere along the way. And we are taught that everybody has different tolerances of pain. 
one big thing, you know, as a new clinician or as a new hand therapist years ago, you're all worried about, okay, what do I have to do with this patient? What do I have to get done? What do I need to accomplish? What am I looking for? However, when the patient has poor pain tolerance or can't look at their hand and they're starting to pass out, you know, then you have that on top of you trying to make the splint, you know, there's all these things that are coming into play and you're like, okay, how do I keep my cool and try to calm the patient down? And, you know, it took me a couple of years to like, kind of feel them out ahead of time and say, okay, how are you, you know, how are you going to be looking at this? Like I'll ask them right out straight out, because if they're like, I'm not going to be good, I set them up so that they can't see, you know, as I'm unbandaging, they can't see what they're looking at initially, or I'll have the person lay down or like, do you have any other suggestions or advice for just things like heads up that might, you know, might need to be aware of as you're first doing these patients? I always think it's the big muscular men that you think are going to be okay. And they're the first ones to hit the floor. And it, it always are. surprises me. <laughs> the worst stereotype. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I work with kids and it's always the dads. So I always, I will say to the kid, I'm like, you, you have to, I'm going to unwrap this. You tell me if you feel sick and if their dad is there or even either parent, I look at him and say, you too, you're included in this. It's very much true. And you talk about unwrapping and you do. I mean, sometimes they come over from the physician's office and they've got that chuck pad under them and they're, they're already unwrapped and they're just walking across the hall to see us. Sometimes they were the ones, you know, taking down the dressing. And so before you do, I, it's always like, you got to stop and just say, okay, before I do this, how are you going to be? How do you feel? I ask them, have they eaten that today? Do they need a glass of water? Like those things are really helpful. And we actually have a pre-op well, that's for a different situation, a preoperative packet that we get patients that know they're going to have surgery. The one of the things says, you know, eat before you come in for your appointment. But I think the other things we do is, you know, getting your vital signs before they start. And this is a big push, particularly in our organization right now, is making sure that everybody's getting their vital signs before they you know, start any of that intervention, because that'll give you a little bit of a a heads up about how the person's doing. And then it's interesting because I just had this conversation with a, a patient the other day because we have, you know, they're always adding more and more things to our electronic medical record systems and check boxes for people to go through. And one of them, you know, is screening people for emotional well being. And, you know, the first time I actually had to, to say this sort of like officially as a check to box as opposed to just this casual conversation we're used to having, you know, we, I had to, it's one of those upfront questions that you have to ask. And I remember saying to the patient, like, I'm really sorry. I'm going to ask this in a very awkward way. I don't quite know how to phrase this question, but, you know, are you having any behavioral health issues or any stresses that obviously other than the injury you're dealing with right now um, that I should be aware of? And he's like, you know, and the person said to me, well, no, but we'll see how this goes. And I think that that's a very telling sign. And right there, it, it was such a gift to me because it made me just stop and say, yeah, this is a bad injury. And, you know, this is going to be difficult. And I have a lot of work to do with you right now. 
but we're going to talk through this and we're going to help you along the way. And it was just, you know, it really made it much more of a mindful conversation for me to just say, yes, I'm aware of that. And this is going to be hard. And what you're okay with today, you might not be okay with tomorrow. And this is an ongoing process. And we'll talk about supporting you through that. And one of the things that we coached about were things like, you know, I talked to you when you go into do your exercises in a room, go somewhere quiet and take some deep breaths and make sure you eat really be, you know, try not to have distractions. So there were a lot of those conversations to have, but I think that that is important when you are working with a patient and that you're preparing them for each stage that they're going to go through, particularly that point when you are unwrapping that package of that first wound. And realize when you're evaluating your patient and in that situation, if the orders come over and you're getting to know this person and you're looking at them going, I'm not going to be able to do what this surgeon wants me to do today. I'm not going to be able to put them in this splint that they want them in today. I, you know, I have this problem, this problem, this problem. The doctor gave you all these ingredients to work with. And now you have to make this digestible for the patient. And you're sort of that bridge or that chef in between making these, pulling these things together. And if you think this plan needs to be adjusted, you are part of that team and you need to speak up to the surgeon and you need to be an advocate for the patient, an advocate for yourself and an advocate for the the surgeon to make this go well for everybody. So if the patient is coping with a lot of pain or they're not coping well with looking at their wound or having all these other issues, you know, you need to titrate your plan based on that. And, you, you know, it's a very fluid and you have to make sure that you're staying fluid in that moment and not sticking to the script or the protocol because you have to. I think especially as a new clinician, if you're under a time crunch, you're just thinking about this complex trauma. You're thinking about all these things. You do need to step, take a step back and ask the patient, like, how are you with wounds? How are you with sutures? You know, you're just as a new clinician, so eager to unwrap this and get started because you have X, Y, and Z to do. You have this limited amount of time and you kind of forget about them as a person. It's a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the caregiver there with them. And Carrie, you mentioned that earlier, you're the husband or, you know, somebody met the husband in the room or the father in the room or the parent, the spouse, like, you know, they may get emotional in seeing this, you know, feeling some sort of guilt or burden or, you know, fear. So, you know, you need to be aware of peripher- on the periphery what's happening over here with that, that family member that's in the room. And maybe they need, you know, you need to prepare them for some of the stuff that's going to happen as well. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. I had a case that the brother was even, and he wasn't even involved in the initial injury, but the way that it affected his brother was so profound too. And the mom came to me and said, Hey, what resources do you have? And I'm lucky to work in a health system similar to y'all that I could lean on some other, some of my colleagues. Is that something that you in your department, do y'all consult with other disciplines to help provide resources for these patients? Yeah, we have a nurse case manager is she in our building three days a week now or two? Yeah, right. I think three days a week. But she's, you know, she travels throughout the health system. So she has a card. She has an email. We always ask if we can put the patient in touch. She has a whole load of resources. And even if it's just emailing her and saying, hey, I have this patient. Like, do you have any recommendations? Can I put them in touch with you in terms of whether it be financial, transportation, 
any kind of mental health resources as well. She, I'm not used to having that. So it's nice to have that on staff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think some, you just mentioned even the financial or transportation. I know that's a big one for some of our patients is they're like, look, I live so far and I don't have the financial ability to make it to visits. And so having that resource, I mean, I think there's so many other factors that go into why a patient can't come. It's not just they don't want to come, they forgot about it, but there's so many other things that I know I might not experience, but I have to take a step back and go, okay, what truly is preventing this patient from getting to these visits and what can I do? And like I said, I know similar to y'all being in a hospital system and I hope that for some for the community clinicians that there are some resources available to them as well, that if they aren't connected with a a big system, that they can get those resources for their patients as well. Yeah. And there's, you can talk to the patient, what's resources they have, whether do they belong to an organization or a church group, or are they maintaining those normal social connections that they need to do during that period of time? And just to go back to what we were talking about earlier is helping the patient, you know, coping with some of their injuries or looking at their wounds and the family member as well. Sometimes I'll have them or I'll take their phone and I'll take a picture of their wound if they're not ready to look at it yet. And then I say, okay, when or their family member's not ready to look at it. And I can think of a gentleman I had recently who had some fingertip amputations and his sister completely started treating him differently, wouldn't didn't want to look at his wound, didn't want to look at his hand. And that was that. And his mother was very similar, was carrying a lot of guilt for his injury. And that was very much impacting him. And so he was dealing with himself and having to deal with these other people. So I said, let's take a picture and why don't you talk to your sister about maybe she doesn't want to see it on you. Maybe she sees this in a very two-dimensional format. She'll be able to cope with it a little bit better because you know she'll she'll be able to depersonalize it a little bit. So that's one way, you know, of sort of getting the patient to sort of start warming up to that, or getting a family member to start warming up to that. But then, and then also offering those resources, encouraging the family member to have some utilize some of those resources for for help as well. And for those not fortunate enough to work in like a huge health system where you have all these resources, asking the patient if they can contact the patient's family care provider. So going to the PCP, hey, I'm seeing this patient. This is what I'm dealing with because they might have resources that they can direct them to if you're you know, at an outpatient facility that doesn't have those on-staff case managers and everything. Yeah, very much the primary care. Yeah, that's a good idea. So how do you handle a situation that might be going south, that you're working with one of these trauma, maybe multi-trauma, and things just go south? What do you do? Where do you start? I think there's so many reasons that things go south, you know, the adherence issue, just bad trauma, communication issues. I think the best thing that you can do is try to maintain as much communication as possible between the patient, the surgery team medical team and and therapy. So really, as soon as you start to see something go south, no matter what it is, adherence to attendance, like getting on that patient to come in, working with the surgeon to call the patient's home to try to get them to come in. So, you know, if it's stiffness or wound issues, again, just communicating with your medical team as best as possible so that they can get it it back into the doctor's office that they need to do that. Like if there's wound issues or stability issues or increased pain, I think 
communicating as best as you can is certainly a key point that I think I would make. Yeah, I really say the same thing, communication and identifying the barrier. What is the barrier to their attendance? What is the barrier to whatever the issue is? Because it might be something simple that you can help address, or maybe it's something that needs to be directed back to the surgeon. And I think those things also, if you see things going south, if you see things being problematic, trying to address those issues before patients go in for secondary procedures, because, and raising the red flag to that, just say, listen, this person is not in the space right now to go on for a secondary procedure. They are having a hard time getting into therapy. They are having a hard time financially. They're having all these issues. And a lot of times patients may think, well, or the surgeon may be on, you know, the medical team may not be aware of these issues going on, or the patient may think, well, I just need to do the next thing. And, and once I, I do that, I'm going to be better. And they have to understand that there's still a commitment after that. These are long-term recoveries with multiple surgeries often. And so you need to make sure that the patient is in the right space financially, emotionally, and has the right coverage and the attendance and all these other things are in place. You don't have that opportunity when the trauma first happens. That initial course of care can be really challenging. But if they're going in for secondary procedures, there's almost no excuse for not having those things, those ducks in order, because you're prepared for those. You should be as prepared as you can be. I mean, things are going to still fall apart, but you need to raise the red flag if that secondary procedure can be put off to put it off until things are more optimal for all reasons, medically, stability, emotionally, financially. Well, I think that speaks to what you said earlier about being an advocate for your patient in that on both sides, be an advocate for what they are doing well and how things are going. And, but also to stand up and say, Hey, maybe this isn't, maybe they aren't the best candidate for a secondary procedure. Maybe they aren't ready for X, Y, and Z because of adherence or, or whatever. And I think that can can play into their outcome too. If they aren't ready for a secondary procedure and they go on to have it, what kind of outcome will they have? But if you stand up and say, hey, maybe this isn't the right time, maybe they can prove that they are or their course of treatment might differ. So I think that's that's a great point. Sometimes it's just an insurance barrier too. I had a patient last year who was doing some kind of home renovations during covid and it was a table saw. So it was fractures as well as flexor tendons. And, you know, you couldn't do early active because things were pinned and their passive range of motion was great. A lot of scar adherence. So the surgeon wanted to do a tenolysis, but we only had four visits left for the year. So the surgeon, you know, doesn't know that the patient always doesn't know what their insurance benefits are. So quick email to the doctor, Hey, can we put the surgery off six weeks? Like, January is around the corner. Their insurance is resetting. I'm not sure what everyone else's protocols are, but we typically see a tenolysis three times a week for the first two weeks. So you would have just blown all those visits and then they don't have therapy after that. And the surgeon doesn't know. They would have done that surgery and then your patient shows up, wants to come, and then they're being told, well, here are your remaining visits and then good luck. And I think you have to focus on function too. Like where... Some of these traumas aren't going to get their 100% recovery, you know, that people always want. Anybody ever gets really 100% recovery. So you you need to think about what are the priorities within this? You know, you need that 
And we talked about in the book chapter that we did, you know, proximal stability, radial-sided hand dexterity, ulnar-sided hand grasp and function there. So you really need to think, what do they need? Dominant hand versus non-dominant hand. And, and not to, to downgrade opportunities to get people as functional as possible, but you need to think about what are the priorities in here? What are we actually going to be able to do in the long term? So really kind of looking at those individual pieces and giving those patients those little tiny pieces of success and those short-term goals. Because if they're constantly looking at that far-off finish line and they're not seeing these little incremental improvements, that's going to seep into their frustration and difficulty in adhering and complying with this. So setting some really good short-term goals and tying those to function it's really those little breadcrumbs that you're giving them to follow that path to that successful outcome, whatever that might be. We were talking about pain earlier. A lot of times, you know, we always have to have ask that pre and post pain question, which we all hate that pain question. What are you talking about? Pain now, pain later, pain at night, pain in the morning. Like it's such a difficult question to answer. I think a good question to ask instead of when you know you're first sitting down with somebody because you always say how are you doing and they're like I'm a four you know it's just how am I doing I'm fine automatically you you know? <laughs> it's just like okay so instead maybe asking them questions like so what's going well for you since I saw you last starting with that positive what have you been able to do since I saw you last instead of just jumping on them right to the negative so what's going well for you okay listen to that, take that, enjoy that success. If there is one since that visit, if they can't identify one, maybe you can help them identify one. The next question would be, what's not going well? And what do you want to work on today? Let them identify that priority. And then you can ask the pain question. But if you're really focusing on those function things, that can help your sort of be a roadmap for your intervention for that day and really kind of gets a little bit away from that pain question. We know we always have one patient every once in a while that never has anything positive to say. It's like pulling teeth, really trying to get them just to identify one thing functionally, like what can we work on? What do you want to be able to do? And then ask them, okay, have you tied your shoes yet? Have you tied your shoes yet? And then when they can tie their shoes, making such a big deal about it, because sometimes it's really, really hard pulling teeth. And they're like, I can't do anything. I can't use anything. And you're like, look, you're holding your bag. Look, you're holding your zipper. Like that's something you couldn't do last week. That's something you couldn't do two weeks ago. And just trying to be a really big cheerleader, even if, you know, we have all our own, all our own stuff going on. It's really hard to be really happy and try and be happy for someone when you've got everything else going on. But sometimes these complex traumas, they really need that. And you're really the only one rooting for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's some good advice. And I think we all need that as caregivers too. We have to remember these are challenging. I mean, everybody needs to take a step back. It, it can be hard for us as caregivers. I don't want to, you know, make it sound like oh, woe is us, but you know, I think we all have to do a check in with ourselves and with our colleagues to make sure that well, you know, it can be it's difficult dealing, you know, dealing with a difficult patient or dealing with a difficult case. You know, you're going to second guess yourself. Am I doing the right things? Am I not doing the right things? Why is this patient not making better progress? Why are you know are they struggling? Why are they not coming? So I think you know we have to do what we can to support each other and ourselves as working with these challenging cases. 
Gail and Danielle, thank you. I think we pretty much covered everything. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and our listeners, and I'm sure they'll appreciate everything you have to say. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. This podcast is really awesome to listen to, and it's great for the membership. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. When subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.